Hi. Hi. Welcome to. Uh, <laughs> trying to not be screaming right now. Welcome to. For the girls. girls. It's a podcast about you and your diva. It's gays gabbing about girls. It's uh, about queer people and uh, their love and worship for iconic female performers. And today, we today have we have Thomas J. Ryan. <sighs> Hi, Thomas. Tom is an incredible actor who you will probably know from stage and screen from films like Henry Fool. I mean, so many Hal Hartley films. Mm-hmm. With um, And on stage, he's currently in The Nap on Broadway. He was in The Temperamentals. He was in The Little Foxes with me. He was in 10 out of 12 at Soho Rep, which is still one of my favorite performances I've ever seen. And we're so um, excited because he is going to be talking about... Barbara. Barbara. I'm so nervous about this one. I know. This is a big one, you this, guys. The, Love the it or hate one it, it's of, a big one. Yeah, it's like a mountain. Top that three I, biggest ones. Yes. When we start when we started thinking about this podcast, I thought, oh, we'll have to wait six months to interview Tom about Barbara. We'll really have to figure <laughs> yeah, it out. We can't drop this right away. Yeah, but you guys need to keep me focused because you know you could just wind me up and I'd go. So you just need to keep me uh, in line, and if I start meandering into unpleasant areas, bring me back. Or maybe you want the unpleasant. Well, we, we want it all. I mean, I also th- and I say this like we're not going to cover everything. Yeah, and especially with and especially with someone like her career, there's going to have to be multiple. Mm-hmm. More episodes right. dedicated to this goddess, right? And, I, and we and, and you know books have been written about this subject. Not only her relationship to gay men, but her relationship to Jewishness in America, her relationship to women and the women's. So we're just never going to take all her relationship that relationship to manicures. Hey, now it's a little early for that kind <laughs> of behavior, Nick. <laughs> no, but talk, I mean, well, her relationship to the hands. I mean, that's iconic. We had for a me. whole conversation about her hands the other day. You should have. I touched one of those hands. Oh, just going nice. right into it. The, her, mm, I did. I think it's one of the most beautiful hands. And no, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. Um, and the and, and well, how she uses them to maximum dramatic effect. Sure. Well, beauty and Barbara are just an. It, uh, that's a conversation on its own. You know what made. <laughs> what made this girl who was so clearly plain? who was so clearly just some, uh, you know, miskite from Brooklyn, what made her not only have the force of will to become a star, but beyond that to will you to find her beautiful? Mm. This is unlike anybody else, I think. And, you know, she never, not only did she never lose the Jewish quality to her nature, she made it central to her perform her persona. And she said not only all of that, I will not be the character woman. I'm not going to be Miss Marmelstein. I won't be. Everybody was ready for a very nice career to happen for her as a Broadway supporting (laughs) actress, you know, with a lovely singing voice and good comic snap. But she said, no, I'm a movie star. And not only am I a movie star, I'm not a clown. I am the equal of Robert Redford as a romantic figure. This is huge. And I think it's so interesting. I have great empathy, always have for her, how much beauty matters to her. You know, it's not. she changed the face of it. I mean, uh, she, uh, completely. And people are like, completely. these things make you ugly. And she says, no, watch this. Yeah. This is what I'm going to highlight. Okay, this is what I wanted to read from this book, but we're so early, I'm going to read it because it goes directly to what we're Wait, well, Let's talk about this book. What is this book? This book I have in front of me, I call it the Bible. You can call it uh, <laughs> Barbara, the First Decade by <laughs> James Spada. It was published in 1974, and it was the first book published 
about her, basically just about the minutiae of the first 10 years of that career. And a little bit about the childhood, but really goes through every television special, every album, and so forth. But um, there's, a, there's a lot of reviews quoted in here, and I want to read one that is actually a bad one. Uh, there's only a couple in here that he uses, but I think it's really instructive about the issue of beauty and how controversial it was in the beginning. And how did you get this book? Oh, I stole it out of the library when I was 12. <laughs> <laughs> and you will not find that an uncommon story. <laughs> um, this is a review for My Name is Barbara, her first television mm-hmm. special, which is rather a landmark. Uh, TV special, won lots of Emmys and Peabody Awards and really redefined television variety specials. But this is a review from, believe it or not, The Village Voice oh. in 1965. And I'm just going to read it, part of it, just a little bit. Barbara comes on too strong for my taste. It is no secret by now that the Trojan War was not fought on her behalf and that she looks and she talks like somebody's unmarried sister on the loose in the borscht belt. There's the matter of Barbara's nose, you see, and how much integrity it took for her to keep it as it is. I personally don't mind her keeping it. It's her flaunting it as the latest Paris style that I find peculiar. Edith Piaf and Helen Morgan were never the comeliest chanteuses in the world, but they didn't flaunt their plainness. They endured it. Ew. Gr- disgusting. Amazing, right? I mean, on so many levels. Uh, how can something be so misogynist, so anti-Semitic? And I know. So- <laughs> because they were threatened by her. Yeah. I think, it was, I think they were really threatened that this person was th- at, already at this power. Because when she came out, she had already come out with, with her first album two years before that? Um, three years. Three she, years. She'd had about five albums at this point, And she was... Uh, big, you know, funny girl was running on Broadway when this was when that TV special happened. And um, if you look at the TV special now, indeed, you know, there's great attention put to lighting and angles and how beautiful she looks. And we really forget it now. But that was jarring for people. What do you what do you pretend <laughs> that you look like a great beauty? This is preposterous. But then, oh, my God, you are really beautiful. You know, it it was a very complicated package for people to take in. This word, this word flaunt, I find, I just, it hit me as a gay person because I remember that, I guess, you know, when I was growing up or when I, after I came out, like the idea of like, I'm fine with it, just don't flaunt it. Of course. Of don't course. flaunt it. And this idea like, oh, of tolerance of something. And that was, it's obviously so anti-Semitic. It's like, just yeah. don't flaunt your Jewishness. Yeah. And she was having pride. She was part of a pride movement, I'm sure, within the Jewish community. Of yeah. being like, I'm proud of my Jewishness. Yeah. It's what makes me beautiful. It is essential to my beauty. Yeah, there's no question. And it's, it's instructive to me that it comes from the Village Voice, which, uh, you know, it certainly was known as the most progressive paper of, 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 of that time, our time. And, um, you know, that, that you would not hesitate to write something like that about a young woman uh, and publish it in a progressive liberal paper in the mid-60s is just really interesting. So, okay, so you said you got that book when you were 12. Mm-hmm. Okay, you stole this book yeah, when you were 12. Yeah, of course. Um, so I'm assuming you were in love with her. Well, Before this. yeah, my, tell, tell my Barbara that. story, as far as I <laughs> uh-huh. came to her, 
Um, I was born in Pittsburgh in 1962. In 1968, we moved out of America and went to Germany because of my dad's work. And we lived there for four years from 68 to 72, which were big Barbara years. That was the, those were the years when the Funny Girl movie came out, when she exploded. And I, but my first memory is right before we moved. We still lived in America, and it was my dad's birthday. I must have been five. And my mother said, we're going to go to the record store, you and me, Tommy, and we're going to pick something to give your father for his birthday. And you're going to get to choose it. She picked out <laughs> an album by Barbara Streisand. I don't know which one. She picked out an album by Andy Williams. I looked at the two album covers and without hesitating said, I want Andy Williams because that lady looks scary. Mm. I was scared by that. Too much, too much for me at five. Mm -hmm. It was like, the man looks friendly. The man looks nice. She looks like, wow, too much. I can't take all that. And so we gave him the Andy Williams record. And that was that. Then we moved to Germany, and after about a year of living in Germany, my father came back from a business trip to America with her first greatest hits album, Barbara Streisand's Greatest Hits, 1969, had all the stuff from the 60s on it. And that's, that was pretty amazing to me. I wore the grooves out on that record. And what's interesting looking back is I, I first experienced her only as a sound on a record completely separated from um, persona, the way she looked, Mm -hmm. her backstory, uh, any of her acting, anything like that. It was just the sound of a voice on a record. And the sound of the voice on the record was so compelling to me that I couldn't put the record off. I, I played it till we came back to the States. And when we came back to the States in the summer of 72, that fall... Funny Girl was shown on TV for the first time on network TV, the Sunday night movie event. Mm -hmm. And my parents, as I say, had liked her. And they said, oh, this movie's on. We're really excited. It came out while we were away. Now we can see it on TV. So we all gathered around. It was a big event. I was mildly interested. The movie began, and I remember the night. The movie began. My parents were enjoying the movie. And for me... It was like a chip was being implanted into my brain. (laughs) It was so elemental to me. It was as if this movie was speaking to me in a code. I I didn't quite know the code. I didn't know at 10 years old how, what the code was saying, but I knew that something far deeper was happening to me than was happening to them. The, the woman standing alone on a stage in an empty theater singing, I am the greatest star. I am by far and no one knows it. I mean, this was, I didn't know what that did to me, but it was a picture of a person who had been unseen, who felt unseen, saying, you will see, you will see me. And, it, and it's coming from inside me, the, the power to make. The to, confidence. To, the confidence, the will. To, to make that happen. And somebody so vulnerable and yet so strong, so the, 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 all, all of it, all of it. And that was where the penny dropped. And that was That's it. where it all began. 
Yeah. Then I then I was in a great position because we got to talk about that movie. I mean, yeah, whatever you want. The most gorgeous. I mean, we just have to go there. for Yeah, a second. one of the the great film debuts. I'm sure there are some in the 30s and 40s that are great uh, as well. Ms. Midler and the Rose is a great film debut too, and but um, something really magical magical happens in that film. In many ways, partly I think because she's so charismatic in front of the camera and nobody quite knew if she would be or not. You know, she's a clearly a movie star from the moment. Oh, she knows where she's yeah. going. Don't tell me not to live, just sit and putter. Life's candy and the sun's a ball of butter. Don't bring around a cloud to rain on my parade. Don't tell me not to fly, I simply got to. If someone takes a spell, it's me and not you. Who told you you're allowed? There's emphasis on the on the wrong syllable, like shun. Yes. Shun, you know the, the way it rolls forward. Do you think she did that? Was that her inspiration? Yes. If you listen to the Broadway version of it, none of that exists in it. Right. I'm sure she came in and said, "I've been singing this eight times a week for all these years. I know the way I want this orchestration to go." And I'm sure working with brilliant Hollywood orchestrators, but that kind of phrasing, you don't impose that on a singer because they wouldn't be able to do it. Right. That has to come. That's organic. organic. It's I it really this song and it's so much of Barbara. We talk about like when do you go to the well of this singer? And I so often go to Barbara if I need to feel powerful or confident or I need like a boost if I need to be boosted. Mm. You know, because she has that. I just think of the sheer power in that voice. Yeah. So I just have to and write this down because we're probably going to cut. We cut this in the first time. I we, we did this the, the kind of when did you know you were gay, hmm. or when did you know you were di- a different a different little boy. Mm-hmm. And Nick and I had just probably seen this movie version, and I was out with my parents at like a Circuit City, and I found and I that was the first time I realized that there was multiple versions of something because I was going to go get the Funny Girl soundtrack and I saw the other you know for the for the Broadway production and I had that was a revelation in and of itself because I was like oh there I could get multiple versions of something <laughs> there was something else before this and I got it and it was it was like I got you got the soundtrack well I try, I, I I found it and my dad at the at the store said to my mom why does he need this we can't get this for him and my mom said because he wants it Greg and I remember th- and I remember thinking well because it's great I mean, it's just great music, but I remember in that moment, that was one of my first clear moments of being like, I'm not doing something normal. A little shame in there. I'm starting to understand that this wasn't yeah. what everyone else was doing. Yeah, and then, yeah. and then shame followed that. Do you remember the first time someone made you feel shameful about liking Barbara? Or did that ever happen? <laughs> that happens more now. <laughs> um, back, back, I, I, I think that 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 uh, you know, my dad loved Barbara, oh. and my 
there, there, Barbara crosses a kind, lot of kind of weird lines where it wasn't automatic code to my dad that I liked Barbara Streisand, that something was off about me as a little boy. Mm-hmm. And that is uh, just, uh, it's just interesting to me. I never really faced that. They embraced it. They, they gave me full reign on that, my parents. And I was an only child. And they really, you know, my room was covered in pictures and posters. And that generation loved her. That generation of my father's? Right? Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, she was a really popular record. She was never a really, as as strange as she was in the beginning, She, she her first albums were all top five albums. People immediately responded to her as a recording artist. And surely a lot of gay people did, but surely a lot of mainstream people must have too. And because she was, she was also always very classy. She wasn't. She wasn't. Um, well, she eschewed doing the pop hits. She did what she wanted to do. Well, she also eschewed doing the standards, which was what people really freaked out mm-hmm. about in the beginning. Because if okay, if you're going to not do contemporary pop music, then you record my funny Valentine, and you record. Right. And she was like, "No, who's afraid of Virginia of, of uh, uh, the Big Bad Wolf and Happy Days are here again and Cry Me a River?" And people are like, "These are not. This doesn't sell any records. You can't." She's like, watch it. Yeah, watch it. Uh, you know, her her basically beginning of her career was little clubs in the village. And uh, the Bonsoir is really the first place she was properly recorded. Columbia recorded her there after signing her, but before doing a first album, thinking that her first album would be live album mm-hmm. from the Bonsoir nightclub. And... Um, on Just for the Record, which is a later compilation, there's a few of these tracks. I can't wait to talk about that because Just for the Record is the where she just gave fans, I would say, one of the yeah. greatest gifts ever. ever ever created of all time. And yeah. I think for, for my diva, I, I I would just die. Well, why hasn't it happened for her? I don't why know isn't Atlantic? Is it because she keeps switching record labels? I, that must be it. Something. Barbara is very unique in the fact that from 1962 to her album release next week, she has been with the same label. Right. So, you know, legally, there's nothing to untie if you want to do compilations or, or whatever. Right, or release. And, and we're talking about Just for the Record, which was this thing that she did mm-hmm, in... In 91. It was mm-hmm. a box set when artists... I think it was like four really discs? Do that. Four discs. Two on the 60s, one on the 70s, one on the 80s. And it was just this, this I mean, literally, it was just like, this material. is my Valentine to yeah. the people who have been with me. material. Mostly all, yeah. Live, right? There was live mm-hmm. stuff. There was, there was outtakes. I mean, it was the gamut. And really, the Bonsoir was this legendary period of her career that none of us thought we'd ever hear. You know, it was really uh, an analogous to Bet at the Baths. Mm-hmm. Right? Which we the did. sort of lore that you would hear about what was she was like there. What was and, the sound? Uh, the sound is fantastic. We can play the clip I brought. Um, but this is this is really gives you a sense of how radical in the beginning she was. This is what people and, loved about and, her in the beginning and began to turn on her for when she lost this quality of a huge oversized hunger, passion, drive. Not too worried about whether the sound coming out was pretty, more just ready to let it be gravelly when it was gravelly and off when it was off, and just mad. And the fact was her instrument was so great that the sound was magnificent. Right. But she's 20 here, and I think that's pretty amazing. The night is cold, the moon is new, but love is old, and while I'm waiting here, the sound of mine is Yeah. 
that's a throwdown for, for me to all the people who say, oh, she's so careful, she's so pristine, vocal. You know, it's, it's like um, uh, uh, that sound, somebody singing, a young girl singing like that in 1962 was just not normal. That was a new vocabulary for nightclub singers, especially a 20-year-old girl. That kind of confidence, that kind of give it to me now mm-hmm. passion uh, was thrilling, thrilling, and it really—that's what gained her the big gay audience. I think in the very beginning, although and that club was gay, right? Like, that yeah, club is. Well, I don't. I mean, I'm not that old, but I I do know that from what I've read. <clears throat> it's funny. I was reading John Gielgud's letters, book of letters, and in it he talks about a night at the Bonsoir in 1962. Doesn't mention her, but. He's there, and he's like, oh, we went to the bar, and if you were a gay man, it was like any nightclub like Joe's Pub is now, where you could pay more money and get dinner and be at Mm -hmm. a table, or you could buy a ticket to stand, and you would be back by the bar standing. But it was known that at the Bonsoir, if you you bought a ticket to stand at the bar, it would be like four or five people deep with gay men, mostly. And so you would listen to the show, watch the show, but you would also be able to, you know, you know, feel people up and have sort of illicit sort of sexual stuff going on. Not not maybe that far, but you know, certainly feel people up and and rub up against people. I mean, this was gay men. This was in a way the underground as it existed in 1960, 61, 62, and. um, she was communicating very strongly to those men, and those men are who won her the talent contests at the Lion, which was an overtly gay club that she first sang at before the Bonsoir. And those are the people who loved her, supported her. It was a mixture of feeling like they wanted to protect her, you know. She was too young to be in a nightclub, or let alone sing in one, you know. And, 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 and she seemed vulnerable, and yet she seemed strong. She seemed feral. And yet she seemed demure, uh, but deeply, deeply emotional. And um, I I think something in that touched gay people. So you remember when the chip was put in your head, when you sat with your family and you watched Funny Girl? Yeah. Uh, Nick and I talk about after our fandom having Bet come out with something in the moment, you know, that, that experience of getting something right uh, you know, an album release, album release, or something. Oh, when released. you first were a fan, but when there was a new product. Yeah, there's right. a new yeah. product, and well, you've got that. to consume it wholesale. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you have that? Uh, uh, well, e- e- or a memory some the way we like were, that. right? Okay. The way we were, the film and the song and the album, because that album is different. Well, there's a studio album with, uh, right. you know, with songs. Uh-huh. That was a number one. It's one of my favorite albums. It's a really beautiful, beautiful sort of. Uh, contemplative album um and then there's the soundtrack album to the movie which is just basically instrumental but the um the that has a turban the turban is the studio album yeah yeah yeah. Mm uh and um she that that was pretty big but i mean 1970 everything changed what do you mean clive davis came to her on the set of hello dolly it is said and said, you're not selling as well anymore. Your style has to change. You're too old-fashioned. People don't want to hear. Now, you're, and her sales were declining in the late 60s, um, her studio album sales. 
I want to get you together with Richard Perry. I want you to listen to some Laura Nero songs. I want you to listen to some contemporary music, some Joni Mitchell. And I want you to see if you could even do a couple of sessions with this guy, Richard Perry, and see if you don't like the sessions, we'll throw them out and we can put out whatever you want. But we think this would be wise. And she said, I really don't. She said, I'll do the session, but I'm very skeptical. I'm going to look foolish. And <clears throat> they recorded Stony End and mm -hmm. the, a lot of the, the tracks on Stony End. And that was a huge moment. And I came into knowing her right then or right a year or so after that. And so her whole persona was shifting then from this 1960s sort of glamorous hair piled high on the head and, you know, beautiful coiffures and gowns, you know, to sort of long streaked blonde hair living in California. This period of caftans. more natural caftans, you know, uh, sort of uh, Ramirez Canyon, Barbara, you know, um, she lost a lot of fans. Uh, in New York, but then she gained, of course, a whole lot more than that by, I, by this mainstream move. And um, I had since I was just discovering the material from the 60s, and now here was this music coming out. Now, for me, it was just like orgy. It was just an orgy of music and styles. And during this period in the 70s, every year there was another album or two. Every year there was a new movie or a television special or both it was a really heady time to become a fan. Hmm. So That's so cool. Yeah. You were becoming a fan in her. She really prime. was prolific prime. around that time. I yeah. mean, she was just The making... 70s was just like boom, 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 boom. And the styles were shocking. You had in one, in 1976, at the beginning of the year, you had her classical album. At the end of the year, you had the Star is Born soundtrack. What pop singer before, during, or since would have the audacity to put out a classical album and something that was such a reach into pop rock mm -hmm. in, within six months of each other. It and that was, classical one was in French, right? It was in five different languages. Like, it, that is crazy. So it's crazy. Like, she could have so easily looked foolish. And she, she was like, I just don't care. And the voice was operating at the height at that point would do pretty much anything she told it to do. And she was communicating something truthful to people that they were receiving and being, and they were excited by. And that, 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 that pop sound, I just, I love it so much. Could we play, could we play from, this is from the, not Martina, but the next one, Sweet Inspiration. This is from her concert for George McGovern in 1972, her fundraising concert. Okay. And, um, but this is conducted by Quincy Jones. The backup singers are Ray Charles backups. It's just like as far from Lover Come Back at the Bonsoir as you can fucking get. <laughs> play it.
Come on. Jesus. She is just swinging. <laughs> she is rocking. You're giving us some rockers runs right yes, now. Yes, yes. Okay. I, oh, I really. She's, but that's like full on like Motown sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, huge. Yeah, yeah. It's but just, so, just sort of uh, fearless during I that mean, period. it's it, it's so interesting. I, when you were just talking about someone who has that much range, she never recorded this way, but I feel like the only other person with this much vocal range was Aretha Franklin, mm-hmm. who could literally yeah. sing opera. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Aretha never chose to record a lot of that stuff, yeah. and she didn't really change her image over the years as much. I mean, she did have image. No, changes. the comparison is really fair. I think that that's that's really the only other person I can think. You know, you watch Aretha Franklin st- sing Nessun Dorma, the Grammys, that legendary moment, mm-hmm. and, and yeah. which she replaced. Yeah, when um, Placido Domingo uh, or Pavarotti. 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 Uh, yeah, there's there's no question. I mean, they're two two of the really great 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 singers and just like singers who also were like musical arrangers and had so much control and like real pioneers in terms of like what female singers could do or what their power could be yes i think you're very right about that i think what 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 aretha is to soul music to r&b music barbara is to female traditional pop singing Mm -hmm. to me she's the maria callas of pop yes that kind of dynamic range Mm -hmm. that kind of able to pull it way back and an ability to let loose and um and always authentically never really seems a real reach i i i think that's true about her mm-hmm. yeah that, that her voice ever seems like a reach well i mean it's crazy when you just watch the voice come out of that yeah it's like just it's yeah it's frightening i mean she's almost. 76 years old now and you know it's 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 a you you can see moments where the voice isn't quite doing exactly what she wants it to do anymore. And she's still so smart, but she's very shrewd about so where to go to the well and where not. And if she's in concert, uh, if she's going to go for that big high note somewhere, she's going to pull back and calibrate earlier. You know, she's she's pretty shrewd. I also think that. she's playing with her lower notes too right mm-hmm. now, and, and actually doing kind of more of the the ground the earthy singing. Yeah. Bring in, which she knows she's capable of. I'm like, and I can see her knowing where how to do that. And you told me one of your questions for me was going to be, what would you do for the last act of her yes, career? Please give it and, to us. And uh, what changes would you make in her direction? My answer was going to be, I'd have her work with new record producers, and I'd have a different kind of sound. But then she's just put out this record. Don't lie I've never to me. Heard her sound like that? Like what? Like that? Like that song? I was like, yeah. this is yeah. so different. Yeah. And, and what don't lie to me? Yes, I, yeah. when I heard it, I was I had to say, am I listening to Barbara Streisand? Yeah. So know, suddenly she's a step she... ahead of me. She's like, I think I should work with a yeah. different producer, and I want actually to do to revisit my pop period roots and not be sort of a god do do sort of oh, you know what I mean? It's, it's a tempo song too. It's like a, a yeah. tempo that I don't that she doesn't doesn't really. It's very unusual record for her. It's a very unusual. The whole record. thing is so yeah. fascinating to me, um, and she obviously really—we're <laughs> getting in that. She obviously released that like just gorgeous image of her in a well. Yeah, yeah. As, like the, yeah. as a Barbara teaser because well. yeah. she's announced. She announced yeah. she's like just get ready at like six a.m. or something yeah, the yeah. next day, and yeah. everyone. <laughs> yeah, but what have we all felt like the last two years? Like we've been like we're yeah. at the bottom of a well. Yes, and we're shouting at a wall, and and um, <laughs> you know, it's, so it's a gorgeous glittered wall in yeah. a gorgeous gown. <laughs> Look, in this political moment, feels like we're either, you're either leaning into it and talking about it, right. or you're in reaction to it which is equally legitimate like I'm in this silly ass play right now well that's to give people a laugh so that they don't have to look at it right. for a minute but I think she's just 
in a moment with this album she's releasing next week. I saying, love it. We're damn the torpedoes, I'm in. Well, we've and, got to play. We've got to jump. We're going from yeah. the seventies. We're going. I know. All we're right, all over. Literally the right now. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. Play that. Don't lie. That's to what me. we're doing. That's what we're it's doing. Just not a play. history podcast. Yeah. This is a Love Barber podcast. How do you sleep? How do you sleep? How do you Answers to someone, boys, <laughs> and the and that person is Barbara Streisand, who we all answer That's to. That's right. In the end. <sighs> well, let's talk about Barbara's stars born, and then we can Rainbow ever... Road. That's what the Barbara version was initially going to be called, Rainbow Road. What? I mean, we yeah. did so. All of our fans are. Gonna... Oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. She wasn't going to call it a stars born initially. That's the gayest name of anything. Rainbow Road. Well, you're doing a ba- gay podcast. Right? I know. This podcast is gay. <laughs> As shit. The other gayest thing is that her hairdresser boyfriend, wasn't it rumored that he uh, directed a lot of it? No, he didn't direct, but he... Is that the rumor, though? Well, have you seen the movie Shampoo? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's sort of based on John Peters. Okay. John Peters is a legendary figure who, in the, in the mid-70s, had all these salons around uh, town and... Um, went to do hair for Barbara Streisand and never left. They became uh, lovers. Uh, he produced her Butterfly album, although I don't know what he really did, not God knows. And um, then the Starsborn project started, and he first was going to produce it, then he was going to direct it, and the whole town was like, what the f- He's never directed. What are you doing? It's your hairdresser. It's ridiculous. And that's where the huge controversy about the two of them as a couple, you know, what's she doing giving control to this guy? Ultimately, he produced it. Okay. In the way very similar to that Sid Luft produced the 1954 movie, Judy Garland's husband. It wasn't a dissimilar situation. Um, You know, a man who she could be controlling the film, although Judy had the great George Cukor directing and barbara just got some guy basically so that she could direct it herself when you saw did you see the judy's before you saw barbara's i don't remember actually i don't remember because that was 76 i don't remember whether that was on tv before okay. but I you remember seeing the barbara oh my Sorry, god it's yeah the mo- it's really one of the great magic moments of barbara fandom because you can sit and you can deride that film all day and night but the truth is Christmas 1976, oh. having been a like a, a fan who yeah. kids couldn't relate to my fandom of Barbara. I had to keep it kind of quiet. You know, it was weird. Funny Lady was not a big event in my high school. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't walk around and say, my family gathered, okay, and a chip went in my brain. No, didn't talk about any of that. Kept it like nice and personal in my, little, in my little box. And then A Star is Born came out, and Star is Born... 
I mean, I remember going on the opening day. The, the line was, it was sold out, all the screenings in blizzards all over the place. It was the number two movie of the year after Rocky. The album was number one forever. The song was constantly on the radio. It was... Evergreen. And suddenly, yeah, and suddenly in my high school, girls had her picture in their locker. Suddenly she was in the malls of America. Just she was, she was everybody's favorite. Superstardom. Yeah, everybody's favorite. And that was the beginning of, and I never expected that kind of a period Whoa. as a fan. I was like, oh my God, everybody loves her. Everybody. And uh, I have really such feeling about A Star is Born, you know. When I put want to put on a movie of hers... And I can't play, pay complete attention and I'm sort of doing things around the house or something. I'll put on that movie. I love the excess of it. I love how of its moment it is in, in 1976. And more than everything else, and it wasn't until I saw this new version that I was able to go and appreciate it fully. Barbara knew even then. That is a woman's movie. That is a movie about a woman. That was the thing that she did with that. She made that woman into a self-possessed, strong, self-sufficient character. And uh, it's very moving to me to now go back and look at how, cl- how much she risked by doing that. Because it played into the archetype of Streisand as control freak, as narcissist. But it also gave her the ability to say, no, the character won't change her name. No, the character could actually go on losing this man if she had to. Actually, she goes to the man and says, you better fucking straighten up or I'm going to walk the hell out of here. So did you love Did you love the hit? Did you love the song that she won the Academy Award for? Which is one of the uh, few songs who, Barbara? she wrote. Yeah, Evergreen. Oh, it's the greatest. It's just great. I love it. In its original version because it's a great production, a great recording. And the actual... The actual moment in the movie where they sing it, she sings it with him sort of improvising along with her, is one of the most elegant moments in any of her movies to to me, uh, musically. All of her stuff is sung live in the movie, as it is in the new movie, too. Mm -hmm. So she's singing this live, and the camera is in a one take that doesn't move. They're moving this way and then moving back, showing him, showing them in a two-shot that goes into a close-up, that goes back into a two-shot, ending in a close-up. And the improvisation, playfulness between the two of them, it's just the best moment of the movie. She wrote this new one we just played. Though. Oh, did she? Mm-hmm. Get out of town. Because that's, you know, she won the Academy Award for that. And I think, I, I was hungry. I was like, 
Keep no, writing, no. Barbara. Because you've been very gracious about it. I, I'm. She she came to the set. She talked to them. She 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 saw it. She said it. She said it's very good. I think she's been. I don't know if if this is correct, but I feel like lately she's been just very gracious about a lot of things. Like she finally <laughs> went and saw Bet Live, which I think is the first what? time that that ever happened. She went to the Staples Center and saw Bet in oh, that's the great. show and. I know I had like read a lot that it was like a really big thing for Bet to have Barbara there at the Staples Center, but I just feel like Barbara has just been like really kind of coming back. She, I just felt like she was in hiding for so long and wasn't engaging. Well, much. you know what I, my analysis of that is is that I think you, for the first twenty five years of that career, okay. there was just no, there was so much life force poured out of her. This is a little weird, but it, 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 you know, from sixty two to eighty five, there was just constant work constant work 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 and then after 85 there was work and then she met this man and she was who are we talking about here jim brolin josh jim Jim. brolin and she's got married and she's like i'm tired and i'm interested in other things and i'm going to explore them and i'm happy and i i have personal happiness and who can begrudge a person in their 60s and their 70s saying, you know what? No, I don't. I'll do. I'll work when I want to work. And some of that work for me got a little gauzy and a little sentimental. And I and I and um, because she stopped touring. Yes. For how long? Back to in, touring. She never that, toured. What? Uh, she never really toured until uh, 94. She did little limited tours in the 60s, and she okay. did lots of dates, individual little dates. But then the live 60s. performances, I know she did like in 87, she did the She did like a concert. political fundraiser, and this thing I played you there, that was a one-off political fundraiser. I didn't but realize that she never toured. No, she... she 94 it, was the big... Is it because she was moment. a perfectionist? I'm like, sure, right? and also because there weren't teleprompters. Really? She said that. There, there, didn't, there weren't teleprompters. When she did the Central Park concert, she... Uh, went up on her on the lyrics to a song, and she was so flipped out by it. Uh, I mean, she was in the middle of Central Park with 160,000 people. Obviously, it's a it's a freaky moment, and she uh, she and there were death threats. The you, you know there were snipers. It was all very weird. And she was like, "I'm going to retreat from this kind of performing. I don't want to do it anymore." So the the concerts in '94. That tour was. We have to, because that was. I, when you see the enormous. opening of, uh, on the video of this, they have people talking. It's like nothing you've seen. I mean, people are crying. Yeah, yeah. They're saying she saved my life. I mean, they look like. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, you know what I'm talking I about. I do. I do. And I start crying seeing it because I know what they're talking about. And she, I was just like, I, I don't. I know she, she didn't plan this, but that concert was like. Life-altering. Yeah, yeah. And she was still in voice that could do anything. Good voice. Yeah, really good voice. So 94. 94. That's the white suit. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And she comes down on the... Right, she starts with just the greatest song to start with. Yeah, as if we never said goodbye from Sunset Boulevard, and uh, and she's on this. Uh, she was obsessed at that during that period with um, American uh, colonial sort of. Uh, design so the whole set is based on monticello you know and it's white sort of american furniture and so it's it's very controlled very barbara in the 90s but within that my god she's singing everything you wanted her to ever sing and to be at madison square Garden. it was a long concert 
Yeah, it was a two big two act motherfucker with no opening acts or foolishness. No. And you could get this is this is the kind of barber there is. You could get the full or you could get the highlights That's on right. CD. I had the see. This is the thing where I didn't you were know, like, I'm in a little. I'll buy the highlights. I got well. I got the highlights. Right. I mean, I was ten, but I well, saw all you missed the, out on was all the blathering talk. That's what then right. that I realized when I watched the concert. Oh. I was like, oh, she does a whole she does a whole therapy act. Yeah, no, we don't need that. But, <laughs> Oh, guys, to be at Madison Square Garden <laughs> after talk, all the years, yeah. Were you after, there? Oh, of course, Were yeah. you living in New York? Yeah, I was living here. And um, I I mean, to just be there for that was just... I mean, how much money did you have to spend on that? Not that much compared to, to, to what, what people pay now for concert tickets, even that are just ordinary. Um, I mean, I have friends who came to see that Springsteen thing, and they were paying $1,200 or $1,500. I don't know where they get it. But uh, I probably paid three fifty for that. And um, uh, That beginning. Yeah. I mean, because it's almost shocking that you're in the room with that voice. You know, it's like a fake out. Mm. You're like, that voice, I never thought I'd be in the room with that voice live. If you were a fan of my generation, she was never going to sing publicly again. She was not going to do concerts. So you'd sort of made your peace with that, which was part of why Star is Born was so great, because there were these live sequences. It was like, that's what she would be like if we could see her in concert. Mm -hmm. But... This event was like she comes out and she opens her mouth and that voice from the record comes out. It sounds stupid, but it it was truly jarring. And the emotional thing talked to the part of me from 1972 who Mm -hmm. got the chip implant and the Mm -hmm. little boy who watched the movie on TV. It was going right to that place. And just the sound of the voice was... And for everybody in the arena, I mean, that was so, so special. She was never going to do it again. Then, of course, it's the only way you can make money now, so she does it. Oh, she tours more now. She's, she tours more now. She it's really so amazing, bug. though, to be in that huge room of fans. 
I love that about when we the Bat Midler ones. To when when I yeah, just being in, or if you're a fan of anything, to be in the room and you know like. Oh, all of Madison Square Garden loves this person, yeah, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when Nick and I talk about seeing, we have seen her separately in concert, and then mm-hmm. when we started together, I think we both just felt like we were thir- did that thing. Yeah. Where you do that flip. Where yeah. you're like, I can't believe this is, this. I've waited for this moment. Yeah. Imagine this moment, and now I'm in that room. Yeah. I'm in the room with her. And that, in being in the room yeah. is something that you just, I remember feeling um, overwhelmed. By um, almost like I couldn't take being in the room with that greatness. Tell us the story <clears throat> of when you met Barbara. Well, I was uh, I was twenty. I was studying uh, acting in Pittsburgh at Carnegie Mellon University. I came to New York for a Christmas for a weekend around Christmas time, and I saw theater plays, and I saw a bunch of things: Dream Girls, Nine. And the last day, I, my friend I was with wanted to go see something else. And so I went to the box office of Torch Song Trilogy and I got one ticket by myself. And often if you do that on the day of, you get a really fantastic ticket because they've released the house seats. Mm-hmm. So um, I had a ticket in the third row, like four seats in from two, three seats in from the aisle. And the two seats next to me were empty. Uh, and the play started and two women came in and sat down in these two seats. The one to my right had a big fur coat that she flounced open and started to get out sucking candies from her bag for her and her friend. And I was like, oh, come on. The play was very amusing. I'm enjoying the play. Whatever the lights came up at the intermission, I turned to my right and Barbara was sitting next to me. Um, I was alone, so there was nobody I could grab, nobody I could could help me <laughs> my if it happened now i'd be dead but i was 20 so my heart was strong but the my heart rate like quadrupled in a second i sat there by myself going what am i going to do how am i going to do this what am i going to do the good thing about torch song trilogy was that it had th- two intermissions so i knew that i had a minute i would if i was going to talk to her and i knew i had to it was my one chance the whole second i was going to do it in the second intermission so I sat there during, and she didn't leave her seat during the second. And people are coming down and looking and then going back. They're too scared to ask to say hello or anything. She's, you know, it was a very weird vibe, but the place was electric with people talking about the fact that she was there. And um, so then the second act happened. I couldn't tell you a thing about what happens in the second act of Torch Song Trilogy. I don't have a clue. I just sort of out of the corner of my eyes watched her watching it. And then the second intermission came and I decided, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go outside first. So I stood up and I made everybody to my left move so I could get out of the row, which was like 30 people. Because you weren't going to disturb Barbara. To no, I was going to walk, make her move. So I got out. I went outside. I breathed a couple times. Everybody's like, oh my God, Barbara Streisand's in there. Barbara Streisand. And I'm like, yeah, I, I'm aware. I came back in down the aisle where she was. And I thought, well, I have a perfect excuse. I'm sitting next to her. I have to get to my seat. So I said, excuse me. And uh, the two of them sort of shifted so I could walk by to my seat. And I, I said, it's now or never. And I went, excuse me, Miss Streisand. Just saying the words was preposterous. <laughs> I said, excuse me, Miss Streisand. And she looked up at me like, say it quickly, please. And I said, um, I'm studying acting. And you've been an inspiration to me my whole life, and I want to thank you. That's what I said. 
And she looked up and she said, that's very nice. Thank you. And I reached my hand out, didn't decide to, just did it, reached my hand out. She put that hand into my hand and she said, thank you. And then I went and sat down. And wow. I think the third act of a play happened. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I look knows. forward to seeing Michael's version because I'll find out what happens at the end of that. Your thing. hand was touched. Yeah. By the you hand of the almighty. By the angel. It was amazing. <laughs> okay. So this is a game we call flops and bops and we can be quick. We, you know, or it can be long, but we talk about a flop is something that you're like, Oh, I wish you wouldn't have done that <laughs> or something that you that, didn't do this on your Bette Midler episode. No, well, we, maybe when we're we probably going to we retape the Bette Midler episode until the beginning of time. That's the big joke. I think we'll be fucking <laughs> taping that. <laughs> I don't think I, it's fair. You forced this on me, but you haven't answered for my, my night in black leather it. yourselves. I love my, night <laughs> we'll we have our flops. I mean, better, we, better we, so many flops. We could flop. We flop talk. Every all movie the time. she made yeah. after first wife's club. <laughs> Except then she found me. That's a good movie. So, but what, but what is okay, it? So, okay, the so thing was is, a flop or the thing was terrible? I'm going to introduce again. So uh, we're going to do flops and bobs. And flops are things that you, for you, are kind of a flop with Barbara that you're like, oh, I don't like this track or something that was a flop in, you know, perception. And bops are weird little nuggets that people don't know. Yeah. Flops are going to be easy. The other ones are going to be, uh, the other ones are going to be cha- challenging. But, but l- let's try. Give us a flop. The mirror has two faces. Oh. I don't like the mirror has two faces. The mirror has two faces. Uh, although she did get a lovely performance out of Lauren Bacall, that has is was is really important to her legacy. Mm-hmm. And Who's I think that's sister good. in that. That's uh, yes, that's the that's the wonderful what's her name who was married to uh, Tom Cruise. Nicole Kidman. No, before that. Oh, Mimi. Mimi Rogers. Rogers. She's really fun in that too. She's funny, but the pic the picture. I remember going to the Ziegfeld, and I had defended. You know, I had defended Barbara for the Prince of Tides for, you know, criticism about too much beauty. I had uh, defended her on various accounts for this kind of thing. And I remember being in that movie theater at the Ziegfeld watching that movie and going, I can't. I really think this is ill-advised. <laughs> well, you know, I remember us seeing it in the movie theaters together or you claim we didn't. I claim I took a girlfriend and she said, why am I doing this? And I, my mom was driving and I said, because it's supposed to be a good film. <laughs> Again, not understanding that no one else was going to that. And I think I said, mom, isn't it going to be a good film? I had, pro- I had you know. I already I found me found someone was already out, so I was yeah. like, "Well, I know that's going to be good music." Right. It was the only song really in the film. I didn't know that, but I think you saw it again with me because I, I remember probably saw it twice. There's so many boom mics in the shot in that movie. I kept remember. Well, there's the a movie. moment where they, where, where she stormed, and I just, this was one of the things. There's a moment of a real late scene with her and Pierce Brosnan where she's now gorgeous. I've, I haven't seen the movie since 1996. It was so oh, traumatizing. Because it's traumatizing. Oh. But there was a moment where she's with uh, uh, Pierce Brosnan and she's gorgeous now. And she looks like a Barbra Streisand album cover, like moving through a movie. And she's like, she gets up, she th- flips her hair and she walks. I don't need you anymore, Gregory or whatever his name is. And she <laughs> flounces out the door and the camera clearly goes by a crew member with a can of Coke in his hand. <laughs> and I'm like... She was in the editing room for six months, and she was so mesmerized by how great she looks in this shot that she didn't see a cameraman with a, a crew member with a can of coke. 
So there's a flop. Uh, my bop is I don't I don't really know why. I mean I know it's from her one of her greatest albums, one of her um, most popular albums, Guilty. Yeah. But the love inside is such a um, transfixing song. Oh my god, what a great choice! Yeah. It's just it's yeah. it, and I don't I'm getting shivers talking about it right now. I probably listened to that song a thousand times because it's so strange and enchanting. So the word is goodbye Makes no difference how the tears are crying It's over And my heart lives alone I can make believe you need me When it's over Can't take it home. The fire that was burning when all around was turning. The dream we sailed was far and so popular at that time she was like I'll sing whatever you want right. she never did that before or since and and so the lyrically they're very uh, abstract those lyrics on that album and so she was never never used to be drawn to that kind of material and on on that album it's such a gift to have her singing such odd things that are so mysterious it was mysterious it wasn't true I, I love that album she, I so think she loved deep. that record too because she put it on her greatest hits she put that track on Love she did, didn't she? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just think it's a great, great, great. It's one of my top five de- Desert Island albums. Yeah. Um, I have a bop when she eats those crab legs at the end of that Netflix special. <laughs> for me. I was like, yeah, I love that you've included this. You're like, we're going to eat some crab. And it's like yeah. her claws versus the crab claws. I yeah. just love it. Yeah, I think I only saw that once, but that, oh, no. the crab claw it's moment. A fa- that's good. I like when she does the Willy Wonka song. I have a bop on that one. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. Yeah. I, when I went to see it at the Barclays Center, I loved the show. The fact that she sang from Funny Lady, even admitted she made Funny Lady. What she sing from Funny Lady? Isn't this better? And How Lucky Can You Get? She sang both of them. Whoa. And uh, we never thought she... I mean, she's she's pretended that movie didn't exist for now 40 years. She's... she she. She met Prince Charles, for example, on the set of Funny Lady when they were pre-recording the music. 
And um, she says, she shows the picture and she says, this is from What's Up. I was, I was making What's Up. No, you weren't. You were making Funny Lady. You have to admit you made it. I enjoy it. What's the problem with Funny Lady? She just pretends it didn't happen. So, yeah. I, I, I have to say, because this is, I think, my greatest Barbara thing of all time. And it doesn't matter. You, we're not going to play it because you have to look this up. My bop is when she was promoting the Funny Lady, when she did the concert uh, for Funny Lady. Right. Right. She has that long, that of course. Hair. That's the, the best way we were version the, uh, ever. The, absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's, a, I, it's just, just look it up, y'all, because she is, I think, some of the most gorgeous looks I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And she just tackles the songs in ways that are so exciting. And uh, yeah, 1975. Um, and it's the first time she sang The Way We Were after it had been this huge hit. And um, it's amazing. And that TV show was live. That was, was shown live from the Kennedy Shoot. Center. And I was rehearsing. Oh, God, I was 13. And I was rehearsing for community <laughs> theater. And I pretended I was sick that night so that I could stay home and watch that show. What was Funny the show girl you to were f- doing? Peter Pan, y'all. Who are you playing? Smee. Oh, oh, you'd be a great Smee. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't important enough to play Hook. But, uh, you know, Captain. Yet. Fact, not yet. But, um, uh, uh, yeah, and I remember going into rehearsal the next day and people going, you don't, you're not sick. You weren't sick. It was the Barbara Streisand show on TV last <laughs> Okay, here's a flop from me. Yes. Uh, a Love Like Ours. This is an album she made right after mm-hmm. getting married. 99. 99. A Love oh, Like Ours. I don't know Ours. this one. Yeah. It's her, like, jo- it's her it's James, a Brolin, James album. Brolin album. And it's, uh, that's. Uh, unfortunate. But I'm going to go straight to a bop because I haven't gotten to do one yet. And uh, my bop is her Jean Mappel Barbara album, which is my favorite album of the 60s. Martina is a song that I told you to cue up. Let's get there. Let's get there, girl. But to set the what I love about this, you know, we played this Bonsoir track earlier. And there's this thing about performers where they're praised if they give their all. You know what I mean? People say that about singers or actors. Oh, my God. She just gave you everything she had. It's so thrilling. She just ripped open. Yeah. And that's kind of who Barbara was in the very beginning. But very soon after that, she began to play with the idea that less is more. Mm -hmm. Like, don't give everything. Don't beg for love. Don't beg for sympathy. Pull back a little bit. She began to do that in the mid-60s. And I think this song, I love this song. Neither of you will know it. It's what the kids call a deep cut. And, um, <laughs> it's, and deep it's, it's, it's also with Michelle Legrand, who uh, I think has always been a great collaborator for her. I can see Martina As a child of three sad seclusion of her nursery go outside Martina go outside and play never speak Martina put your toy Oh, no. 
mystery in that performance there's anger in that performance mm-hmm. there's dynamic in the performance but there's also I can't give you I can't sh- if I showed you everything I would uh, I, I couldn't live so I'm showing you just a little bit yeah. and that's that's what I love about it and that's really what I love about her too she's there's taste you know there's taste and there's I wish I could remember that interview where she talked about this issue because I've always remembered it in my acting too. You know, don't don't go for everything. Don't show what you're feeling so directly, always. Mm. Make people wonder what you're feeling. You know, it's a very hard, sort of delicate subject, but she's always been quite quite brilliant at that. Bob. Such a good Bob. Yeah. Okay, I want to play some quick, just some quick runoffs real quick. Okay. And then I think we'll we played like one. nine songs. We're just, well, yeah, nine songs. Nine songs. <laughs> favorite movie? Just real quick. Favorite movie? Oh, bam. Okay. Uh, 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 I, I, I love Up the Sandbox. And uh, I love um, Funny Girl We've Talked About, The Way We Were. Up the Sandbox was the um, one Irvin that- Kirshner. It was a real bomb. It was a real flop oh. with the public. Um, but it was like a real feminist. Yeah, yeah, 1972. And because of the failure of that, I think she never risked that much in her really? film career again. Because she started the produce, she started producing her with that. Yep. Mm-hmm. What is that fandom like for you in, in 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 a community? Like Nick and I talk about how the fandom between Bet is was just between us, but then other people have other experiences of finding friendships. And I've been community. kind of traumatized by, by reaching out to other fans <laughs> Yeah, because I, there's one that I have. His name is Richard Giamanco and he lives in LA and he's known as sort of one of the, the great sort of collectors of stuff. He's a real sort of uber fan. We went to college together and, and so he's a friend of mine who shares this. But whenever I've been introduced, I have to say, I don't like having to say this, but when I've been introduced to fans, like real fans, they've been competitive They've been like, who are you and how many times have you seen her and what are you – oh, you're wrong about that. You know, I get very uncomfortable. Because there's like it's an ownership. personal to me. Yeah. It's very personal right. to me and I don't want to win a contest for it and I don't want to know more than you know and I don't want to – I just want to talk about it the way I just talked about Martina to you. Mm-hmm. It's that personal to me and I don't want it made into something – crass or competitive or, or like that. So I don't participate like on online forums where people argue about things. And so I just don't, I'm personally not comfortable with it. Tom, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, you're welcome. But there's so much more. We have to go down an all night long K hole or we have to go down talking about. There's so many. Yentl. Did the guilt trip work or did it not? How did we've been through all this and we haven't talked about Yentl? It's appalling. I mean, this is, I would say, like, and I, yeah, we got to get on record on this. Like, this is not Rushmore (laughs) diva. Do you know what I I mean? Like, there's no, and I, and so y'all just buckle in if you're. (laughs) 
You're still listening. <laughs> because if you think this is the only time we're going to have Tom on to talk about Barbara, you're insane. Who's doing so. your Judy? We don't know yet. Oh, my God. We haven't you done think the, this is problematic. We call Judy the grandmama, the high priestess of... <laughs> the supreme. The, the supreme. And then, Barbara's like you know she's like in the in the ladies in waiting yeah yeah, yeah. Oh. so we're we'll, we're always gonna come back to this Barbara well, well thank you for having me it's yeah. been such a joy to talk to you I could um, talk to you love, about we all love of to it. go out on something is there a track like any track that you can think of that you'd like to go out on um, let's go out on the um, on the uh, film version of my man from Funny Girl the end of Funny Girl I think that's my number one. Why wouldn't it be? It's some live. I think that's, that's my per- number one. Yeah. <laughs> Why wouldn't it be? Why wouldn't it be? Fucking life changing when you hear it. This won the Oscar for her. This performance. So glad we're doing this. He'll never know. All my life is just despair. But I don't care. When he takes me in his arms. The world is bright. All right. What's the difference if I say I'll go away when I know I'll come back on my knees someday? For whatever my man is, I am his forever. Whole fucking. Oh, I have to say, <laughs> play the whole you know, 